Jerry, it's good to be back in the same room with you again. Last time we spoke, you were here at Safeco Field. I was in New York, and I've got a great story for you from my time in New York that pertains to the podcast. A fire away. I'm all, I'm all ears. So Saturday night, I was getting a late dinner with a friend of mine who happens to be a scout for the Rays, and he had with him a friend who is a scout for the Brewers, who I was meeting for the first time, a really good dude. And uh, we're, we're talking all things baseball for, like, hours, right? And Jason, my friend with the Rays, after two hours, says, uh, hey, man, like, uh, the podcast is, is really great. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, thanks. Yeah, it was, it was really a lot of fun. And then Jason said, your name, referenced DePoto and as it pertains to the podcast. And the other guy, the Brewer Scout, said, wait, you're the host of the DePoto podcast? That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. <laughs> a little more secret. So uh, just so you know, that, you know, this is making its way around uh, all the hallways of major league offices. So, so obviously – Play-by-play on Root Sports. It's it's providing guidance to a nation uh, at, at various national I would say sports so. broadcasts, and this is what you're known for. That's what I'm known for. Yeah. So I'm curious. After I got that feedback from a, a complete, essentially stranger, hours beforehand, I was I made me think: Has Jerry gotten any feedback from people of your level, other executives for other teams? I, I, I have received an occasional. Let's call it, you know sarcastic <laughs> come or, on you know, or reference to actually there have been a number of people in the industry who've reached out and they think it's they think it's fun they think it's informative they enjoy listening to it oddly enough i think many of the people in our organization in mm-hmm. the mariners organization are they're dialed in they listen sure. and uh it's it's been refreshing for me to hear from them that that uh Hopefully, whether it be the way I, I, I interact with my family at home, the way I interact with, with the people here at work, or the way we talk here on the podcast, I'm the same. And, sure. And the, and the message is, is consistent, and, and, I, and I think that at least the feedback I'm getting is that true. Unless no, they may not think that, but they tell me that. Well, it's cool that you're getting it. We're only nine episodes in uh, as of today, so I'm sure that uh, more feedback from uh, from like I'm excited for when like Sandy Alderson texts you with you know with, as he goes back and listens to the whole archives and here's the, the basically the Alderson episode, right? There's, I'm, I'm sure that will eventually happen. Uh, <laughs> I'm still waiting for that text to arrive, but. <laughs> Well, uh, hey, speaking of the podcast, so remember you can always subscribe uh, via iTunes if you have not already. And uh, we're also on TuneIn for Android users. So um, good stuff there as uh, Colin O'Keefe has continued to get this out to the masses. Uh, we've got a, a number of things to talk about today, uh, Jerry. And one of the things that I was thinking about uh, the other day as it pertains to our conversations, you know, we, we talk all the time about analytics and uh, how you use them, how the Mariners use them. And I was curious if you had spoken to people in your chair with other sports and other leagues, and if they have picked your brain about how you and the Mariners use analytics in, in basketball or in football or in hockey or whatever it might be. The answer is yes. Short, I, I belong to a group. Well, we with the Mariners have a, an existing relationship with a group called Leaders in Sport, who they do a fantastic job of connecting various leaders throughout the, the or crossing over the, the different divisions of sport. And, and in being involved with that group, I've been able to befriend a number of people in a variety of different sports, ranging from domestic U.S. sports like the NHL, the NBA, and the NFL, and, and sharing best practices with, with them, in addition to some maybe off-the-beaten-path 
opportunities, like particular European soccer, uh, Australian rules football, the relationships we're able to build in, in those areas. And I've actually found myself over the, the last year or so starting to tune in to, to rugby matches because I really like the people that we've had hmm. an opportunity to interact with. Uh, so, and, and on to maybe the most unique of the, the people I've had a chance to get to meet is, is, uh, is the captain of, of a, a, uh, a cycling team, which is the, never even knew that there would be a captain of a cycling team, the equivalent of a general manager, you know, for, for a Tour de France cycling team. They, they specialize and they win the championship frequently. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the, the opportunity to talk with people who build teams in these variety of different sports, the way they put together rosters and the needs they have, the, 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 the ability to be a teammate and rely on one another is consistent across all sports. Mm-hmm. They just may look through a different analytical lens. It's interesting, like, when you look at, I mean, college basketball is in full swing, of course, right now with conference play, the NBA, the NHL, as you were just referencing briefly. You know, like Ken Palm has kind of become that guy for college hoops, right? I mean, he has built an empire on basically the number nerds for college basketball. And it seems like that is obviously infiltrating the NBA as well. But does baseball have the, the leading edge when it comes to that type of thing? Yeah, I, I think most in the, in the world of analytics and sports, metrics, uh, believe that baseball is the forerunner. I, I know this dates back, again, we'll reference Sandy Alderson, Billy Bean, Theo Epstein, uh, coming through the last 25 years or so where it's become so much more fashionable. We are viewed, baseball is viewed as the worldwide leader in sport in, in the, the collection of and dissemination of application of analytics using the metrics to make a difference. Whether it's in how we set up our defenses, this is how we evaluate our players, or the like. We are, in fact, maybe viewed as the trailer or you know, bringing up the rear in regard to high performance. And part of what we trade out is you know, we will have multiple in-depth conversations, sometimes daily meetings. I'm going for, for a pair of them at the end of this month with a couple of NBA teams where we will do an information share. We will provide them with insight for how we use and gather the analytics and apply it and maybe the way we scout, which is much, much different than other sports. And in return, we will get a, a ton of information on high performance, on, on player care, rest and recovery, which is obviously, as you know, an avenue we're currently traveling, trying to figure out how to become something less than the, the 30th dog in the race. So I mean, this goes, this is obvious and it goes without saying, but in case people haven't heard some of our previous episodes, like Sandy, uh, I mean, that's where Dr. Lorena Martin comes in, right? This is of a groundbreaking effort on your part to to have a person who is the focal point of that position. Absolutely. And Lorraine is brilliant. And we know that transitioning as a baseball team into an area where really no baseball teams have crossed, is it's a big undertaking. And we're going to run into some bumps in the road. We're hopeful that it, it manifests itself in a big 2018 result. But we might see this over the course of time as we develop these plans, process, and, and, and applications. But so far, so good. The, the, the impact that Lorena has had with our Major League staff, the buy-in that she's achieved in our big league clubhouse, so to speak, and with the connections she's made with our players, right now we're moving in a very positive direction. We've got a lot of developmental work to do in, in the other areas of the organization. But right now, so far, so good is the, is the way to term our HP. <laughs> Along those lines, in some ways, 
this is kind of the time of year where people like to make projections of what each team will look like, and Fangraph certainly has no shortage of those numbers. Is that something that you and your office pay attention to? Absolutely. I, there's religiously is the, the answer. Really? I will, oh, I can't wait till the next projection comes out. There's a, it's, it's almost like a kid. When you were a kid and you were going to the, you know, to the drug store, the candy store, to get, a, to get a pack of baseball cards at the start of the season, dying to see you know, what the new edition looked like or who was going to be on top of the cellophane pack. You know, I feel the same way in, in this stage of my life looking for projections because what it does is it, is it generally expresses, while they may not be accurate with our own line of thinking, while they may not be consistent with the, whatever projections we're producing internally, there's what they are is they are reflective if you take baseball reference, if you take prospectus, if you take fan graphs, and you take a collective view of them, you know, effectively throw them into a hopper and divide by five, you get a general idea of what the, the, the state of your club is, where the strengths are and where the weaknesses are. And, you know, to that extent, it's pretty consistent with our own vision of our team. We believe we have a, a good offensive club. It's represented that way. We believe we have a, a, a deep and quality bullpen. It is represented that way. We believe that we have some questions in our starting rotation, and we need to prove that we're healthy enough to maintain the long road, and that's represented in the forecast, regardless of whether you agree with the decimal points. Do you ever have a time where you say to somebody in the office, did you, did you, did you see this one? Or can you believe that they wrote this? Or, oh, and, it, and then it fills a whole day. And then are there times where you say, oh, I think they're, they're absolutely spot on? Or I'm guessing is it normally more times someplace in the middle? There's, I, I would say more often than not, it's the we all, and, and when I say we all, not just the Mariners, but 30 teams, I've worked for a handful uh, over the course of my lifetime, we all believe our players are better sure. than anybody else believes our players are. And that goes from scouting and player development through your major league club building. There's, there are exceptions to the rule. Everybody knows the, the greatness of Mike Trout or Bryce mm-hmm. Harper or Manny Machado or Josh Donaldson. We all look at our role players or what we would call the, the contributors, not the stars, or the, the, the average everyday player who doesn't really grab the, the marquee or doesn't, you know, is, isn't a known entity in, the, in the, the public eye. We all hold those players in such a much different light than what they do uh, in, in, in a projection system. Or what the other 29 teams do. So, you know, we have a favorable view of those guys, and we always think they're getting hosed when we look at the <laughs> fan projections. That's just real. Sure. And, you know, so, you know, because we have a greater feel for what that person, not necessarily what the player's statistical review is, but what the person, what his work habits, what his internal development, what his physical changes look like and as a result you know for instance i think that the this year's projections particularly those on fan graphs were a little light on a variety of our players not the least of which are uh, gene segura mitch hanniger and may, maybe most notably d gordon and some of that is natural it's hard to divide by three when there's been broken service or or in essence no service and you're trying to work off of one short number you know, I can't fault them for questioning our starting pitching. We know we're going to have to prove it. But I think our lineup has proven their mettle, and they deserve a little more credit than they're getting. So how do you in your position go about not falling in love too much with any player? Because when, when you first came to the Mariners and Trader Jerry was born, right, I mean, let's face it, I, maybe exclusively the players that you were trading away, they weren't quote-unquote your players, right? You inherited these players. And I think a lot of us thought, well, 
it's got to be a lot easier to trade away a player that you did not help to cultivate. Well, now you've been with the Mariners for long enough that that's not the case, right? Most of these players are your players. So how do you how do you go about balancing that that kind of love for a player almost like a child, right? But being able to see where the team can be better in some areas. I, the, the easy answer to that is there's, there's in roster building or even in assessment, there's kind of three ways you can look at it. You can look at it optimistically, you can look at it pessimistically, or you can look at it pragmatically. And this one I've presented to our scouting group. I've presented it to our player development group. I am a pragmatist. That's what I do. I, I, we identify a problem, and then we're looking for a logical solution. How do we fill that hole? And what you're doing in filling that hole is looking at a bigger picture where we can't allow the group or the, 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 the – we can't allow our army to be brought down by the one individual. And when I say by the one individual, we're never going to leave one out on the battlefield, but we may need to trade one to make sure that the others can better perform in the right way, if that makes any sense. We want to create a group, a, a, a unit that can go uh, 162 games and, and come out on top. And sometimes that may not include a player that we're all emotionally attached. A great example is this past offseason. We may not have had a player in the last two years who I, who I like personally any more than Emilio Pagan. He's a terrific guy. Uh, I like him. I, I like his family. I love the way he's wired. He's a hard worker. And I think he's a really good major league reliever. But there's a really good major league reliever doesn't play first base, you know, and so we had to, you know, we had to come up with an alternative solution. And and uh, while we have other players that I like and believe are really good major league relievers, Dan Altavilla, newly acquired, Sean Armstrong, Nick Rumbelow, James Pazos, we have a number of guys that are that we feel like can really contribute. Tony Zick uh, are all in that general genre optionable, controllable, young relievers with big arms. It was an area where we thought we had a surplus. We're going to use pragmatically. We're going to use it to solve a, a problem without allowing the emotion to pull us down. And then later on, when Emilio Pagan succeeds, I will be the first one he gets a text from to, to congratulate him on his success. He mentioned scouting a moment ago. Do I understand correctly that there is a scouting meeting of some kind going on at Safeco Field as we speak? Yeah, you've pulled me away. The 45 <laughs> minutes we had to wait for Nathan to <laughs> to, to, to fix the, the audio, you know. But no, we, we are currently conducting our uh, our scouting meetings. You know, this past week we went through a continued education program down in Peoria with our high performance and player development camp. The week prior, we did our major league staff. So this is, we call it Kumbaya month. You know, we, <laughs> we go through a, a series of, of meetings, first with our major league group, then with our player development group, uh, then with our scouting group to essentially refocus ourselves. Here's, what's we're, here's what we're about. We identify the, the, the pecking order of, of, I guess, priorities in each of those departments and, and effectively bring them up to date on what we're doing organizationally so that we all move better in unison. And, and it's wildly productive. In some cases, it's, it's our only chance to get to sit live with some of the people, especially area scouts who aren't frequently in Seattle. So it gives us a chance face-to-face to see what they're about, to let them contribute in, in a more meaningful way. And I think as far as meetings go and party planning, organizing, few people do it better than our VP of scouting, Tom Allison, who is uh, 
he's, he's a master of creating a flow in a day and keeping it interesting for everybody. And I think we're, we're making progress and we're having a little bit of fun. Well, Tommy's wonderful. What a good dude. How, how many scouts are we talking about that come to meetings like this? How many people? I'm um, in a ballpark and say downstairs, we've probably got something in the neighborhood of 60. And, wow. uh, you know, and that includes leadership, cross checkers, area scouts, professional scouts, and a few of our international personnel. In addition to our analysts front office who are down there contributing to taking a look through different lenses. So, you know, we, we scout players in a variety of different ways to come to a conclusion. It's almost like a scouting pinwheel now with the player at the center. So analytics, it's analytics, it's performance, it's, it's the, the, the scouting view, it's makeup, it's the high performance group and their assessment of, of psychology, the, the psychology of the player, the character of the player. And we're taking all that information and trying to, to I guess, massage it into the right decision-making formula, so to speak. And are we at a level now, this time of baseball, where you can get that much information on an amateur player? Holy smokes, yes, uh, to the point where, you know, in, in some cases, it's almost it's almost information overload. And by the time you get to the June draft, particularly, you can almost talk yourself out of a player because you know too much, which is because in many cases, these players are being scouted shortly after they're, they're – leaving grade school sure so we know particularly in the baseball hotbeds you know florida california texas uh even now i would qualify georgia as uh, as as the big four and uh, i don't know that anybody's ever thrown georgia out there but that is really georgia is its own scouting mecca and uh particularly at the high school level but those four spots, because the weather is conducive to year-round baseball and and we have so many good young players coming out of those places, and particularly in the cases of California, Florida, and, and Georgia, there are amateur tournaments going on there year-round for players age 9 to 18, and, uh, and we're watching all of them. So in some cases, we may be watching a prospective first-rounder for 2018 who we've seen play since age 10 or 12, which is... It's good that you know that much about them. It's also bad that you know that much <laughs> about them. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to stay level-headed and make good decisions. But, it's, uh, you know, this is the information age, and we've got a ton of it. Hey, last time we spoke, Jerry, you were uh, hours away from departing to Clinton, Iowa. How was your time with the good folks with the Lumber Kings? Uh, the, the time with the good folks was fantastic. Uh, we had a, a group, I would say, of about 120 Lumber King loyalists. Uh, many of whom, as I as I have found out, are on the the board of directors, which numbers twenty five. Like the Green Bay Packers, Clinton uh, the Clinton Lumber Kings are a community owned franchise, and uh, I, I have to say they're our affiliate. And I did not know that until this weekend. And uh, you know, Ted Turno, the general manager in Clinton, filled me in on the detail, and I thought it was great. We had a nice dinner. Uh, it was an adventurous journey to and fro. And, <laughs> that, uh, th- and I will say the fro is a little bit more <laughs> ominous than the two. But uh, in, in getting to Clinton, the, the, I would say the temperature was roughly around zero. The, the snow was heavy. And for those NFL films uh, enthusiasts, I, I was in my head, I was, I was, the whole thing was being narrated by John Facenda as I looked out <laughs> windows and, and made my way from door to door. Uh, well, I'm glad that you uh, made it there and back all right, and I'm sure uh, the good folks at Clinton enjoyed having you. And I did not know that either about uh, the Lumber Kings. So that's, that, I'm sure that will make a broadcast at some point, so I thank you for that. That's great. Uh, hey, speaking of uh, the NFL, and uh, obviously the playoffs are, uh, are deep right now, I've been told about a 
flag football adventure of yours when you were with the Rockies? Is this, can you shed some light on this? It is, it is something I recently shared with, with my good friend Kevin Martinez, uh, who we, we are all fond of. And, uh, and he thought it would be fun to, to allude to it somewhere in this process. But uh, in, the, in the 1990s, I played for the Rockies from 1997 and retired in 2000. And if you'll recall, that was a time for, for Colorado where the Broncos were two-time Super Bowl champs, the Avalanche were two-time Stanley Cup champs, and it was whether it's John Elway or Terrell Davis or a host of Hockey Hall of Famers. You know, we had, we had the MVP of the National League in Larry Walker in 97 and maybe the, the biggest young hitting star of the late 90s in Todd Helton. And it was just a host of – it was a great time to be a sports fan in Denver. Well, I bought a house in, in Denver in the fall of 1997, and, and, and only after moving in did I realize that we, we lived on a street with what I would say were no less than five NHL All-Stars. And, uh, you know, one lived catty corner to me, one lived across the street, another lived at the end of the street. Guys like Adam Foote and Keith Jones and Joe Sackick and, you know, at, the, at, the, at a time where these guys were at the top of their game. And, uh, and catty corner to us lived a, a, a couple of young guys, a 16 and, and 11-year-old brothers named Matt and Ryan Schick. And uh, Matt, who's now uh, working for ESPNU, I believe, hmm. uh, as uh, trying to summon his inner Aaron Goldschmidt. Uh, we'll have to get a podcast yeah. first. There you go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a 16 and 11-year-old. This, this almost harkens back to the days of Willie Mays playing stickball without the fanfare of actually having Willie Mays with a stickball. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we, I walked out uh, on, a, on a sunny, you know, Thursday afternoon in, in November, and, you know, I learned a lot about the hockey schedule. You know, the guys go over to the arena. They do a skate around for a little bit of time in the morning, go through their treatments, and then come back home. And then they go back down to the, to the rink about an hour before the game. Right. So it's a different rhythm than the baseball schedule. So as it worked out, and I can say this now because they're all retired and they won't get in trouble for <laughs> me calling them out on the air, but uh, we, I walked out and started playing catch with the football with the, with the two boys, you know, Matt and Ryan. And, and next thing you know, you know, Adam foot filtered out of his house and Keith filtered out of his house. And before long, we, we had a full-fledged like three-on-three going, just playing football and you know the following weekend a couple of my teammates were over the, the house watching a football game and the same thing we naturally gravitated out, out to the street well before long we start playing like organized flag football games with the two neighborhood kids as the captains uh, of, of teams and one is the captain of a team of Rockies players and the other is a captain of a team of Avalanche players and Let's just say we found out quickly that, that the Avs guys, while wonderful hockey players and all-stars in their own right, Stanley Cup champs, were not fleet of foot on the ground. <laughs> uh, and, and as a result, we were able to expose a weakness and, and you know, scored some quick touchdowns, and we won a handful of games right out of the chute. Uh, only after identifying that we had come up with a weakness and we had an 11-year-old bomber tossing <laughs> up seven-yard passes after we got in back of him that resulted in touchdowns. And Tommy John. Uh, yes. <laughs> so only after this, this, uh, th- this was identified did they change their tact. And, you know, on a, a given play in the, at the start of, let's call it game number six of uh-huh. this succession, I'm lined up to go out, and Adam Foote, all-star, many-time all-star in the NHL as a defenseman for the Avs, later the Columbus Blue Jackets. I took three steps off the line, 
and then I was laying on my back <laughs> and, and, and the, in the middle of uh, – uh, Is this uh, within the rules? What, oh, it's it, in our rules. It was, okay. it was within our rules. I am laying on the ground, staring up at, at the air, I, and I looked at Adam, and my, I said, the hell? <laughs> and and he, he said, hey, we learned our lesson. It's, it, it's go time, and it's on – that was the first time we lost. Really? Yeah, because roughly we found out that they were much tougher sure. than we were. And uh, we couldn't get off the line, and it turned into more like a John Facenda grinder at the Ice Bowl. And we played those games for about three years. Really? Yeah, three years. It was fantastic. The, you know, the, the kids throughout the time, Matt went off to college, Ryan went into wow. high school. And then ultimately, Keith Jones was traded to the Flyers, and and you know, and and the group started to break up a little bit. You know, Joe Sackick you know, moved to a bigger house, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, the rest of us. We had a lot of fun. We played with the, the. It was it was interactive. The kids in the neighborhood, people would gravitate out toward the street. They would laugh at how you know how maniacally we were going after this. And you know, it's twenty some odd years ago, but I've never forgotten how fun it was and how engaging it was. And really, that looking back on on the moment, what it must have meant for those kids oh, yeah. to to have that kind of interaction with the guys. And and believe me, not me and our utility infielder, but the <laughs> you know, I, when I say this, I mean like true hockey right. legends and and watching them throw football around and run around like madmen trying to pull socks out of the belt of the. You know, the crazy baseball players who could throw it a long way but couldn't get off the ground. So high-budget flag football <laughs> is what you're saying. It was. I mean, God, if anybody went down, we were all in trouble. So would you be okay if three of your players played flag football against NHL All-Stars? I, I may have something to, uh, to contribute <laughs> to that. I think it would be a horrible decision. But uh, one of the things, and Scott and I always talk about it, is that just like we are as parents and you think about all the stupid mm-hmm. things that you did when you were growing up, and the, the best you can do is impart on your kids – you know, do do as I do, right. not as I say, or do as I say, not as I do, type thing. But I will say this: that, and we say it to our players all the time, and and to some degree, I've taken a little bit of ribbing from the players about it. I, I I always reference it. Find a way to say yes. Find a way to say yes to to the request. Find a say way to say yes to the autograph. Find a way to say yes to interacting in your community. And that's just part of it. It's, it's, it's finding a way to, to connect. We don't need to run around like madmen throwing footballs around. But, you know, who among us hasn't done something <laughs> you know, that we regret years sure. later? Uh, this does lead to the uh, never-ending debate as to who is the best athlete among all the professional sports. Oh, my God. I have opinions. I have opinions. I, if I had to pick a single player in a single sport, I'll take the, the cornerback in the NFL as the best athlete in sports. Is uh, it, if you think about it, you, they're they're super athletes. They have the the skills and athleticism of a wide receiver. Only they're playing their position, running backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know. There, there's each each sport is unique unto itself. Mm-hmm. And and I've I've referenced this before. One of the reasons why I think baseball is such a passionate thing for the fan base uh, is that most people that that most people that love the game or that watch the game in some way have taken part in the game. They've played catch. They've played Little League. They've played softball. They've taken a, a whack with the wiffle ball. You know, there's, they've done something. And when you watch the Major League player on a Major League field, it looks just like it looked when you were doing it, only it's happening a lot faster. <laughs> and, you know, but the, the result is that most people who watch and are fans of the game think they're not too far removed from playing the game at that level. I'll tell you another story about that somewhere along the way. If okay. you want to do it now, I will. Yes. Right? So in 1994, uh, 1994, I was I was with the Cleveland Indians, 
and we were in the midst of, as as we know, the the, the Major League Baseball players strike. Uh-huh. And you recall, we went home. I think it was August 11th or 12th of that year, not expecting that the World Series would be canceled and that the rest of the season was forfeit. We went home with the idea that we were going to keep ourselves in shape for when they called and we were going back. So we would get together in the mornings. We would go work out. At the time, I was living in Kansas City. We would go work out. We'd throw. And there were a dozen players that would come and and gather in the mornings to go through this that lived in suburban Kansas City. Uh, Off the top of my head, Joe Carter, Kevin Seitzer, Mike McFarlane, Brian McRae. It was a good group, good group, really talented players. And uh, George Brett, the great Hall of Famer for the for the Royals, who had retired the year before, would still come out occasionally and just generally join in the in the workout, the banter. Sure. And he had a friend who who he introduced us all to a, a guy by the name of Lee Judge. And I'd met Lee. He was a cartoonist for the Kansas City Star. He was also the manager, first baseman slash DH for a local thirty five and over men's team, men's league team. Long and short, after many weeks of discussion, Lee had surmised that his 35 and older team was of the belief that they were somewhere between AAA and major league quality play. And he was curious if we weren't busy on a given night, if we could play them in an exhibition game. And he wasn't going to tell them who we were or what we were doing. They were just going to show up and play an exhibition game, you know, off schedule game. We showed up in sweatpants and t shirts. And when the team took the field, the, it was like an all-star team of players on the field. And, and I was I mean, literally, at that time, think of how good those players were. Seitzer and McFarland, oh, yeah. and Joe Carter, you know, BMAC. And so everybody lines up on the field and immediately, and, and most notably, they, they recognize Joe Carter. Uh, the, immediately, the group of 35 to 45-year-old men in the other dugout, hold on, there's something wrong here. <laughs> Uh, we proceeded to play what was going to be a regulation game. We all agreed. We, we batted opposite hand. Uh, we we batted opposite hand. It's a pretty big and, handicap. And uh, and at the end of at the end of two innings, we were winning the game sixteen to nothing. Oh. And they had not made contact in the batter's box. Finally, we called off the jam. Everybody got together for a group photo afterward. And I think they understood at that time that the game does move a little bit quicker with that type of of player. That's fantastic. Oh, how I got you? all kinds. Keep going. <laughs> That's uh, you know you, when you mentioned the Rockies, it did uh, in a roundabout way remind me of something I've been meaning to ask you for a while. Uh, a a re- regular listener of the podcast, uh, the great Mark Simon of uh, ESPN. He was part of their ESPN stats and info department, and uh, he does uh, such a great job. He even came on air with us a couple of spring trainings ago when he was down in Peoria. Uh, we, we like Mark a lot. He uh, reached out to me at this point months ago. Sorry, Mark. Uh, and he had a bit of trivia for me. And I'm sure you know the answer to this, Jerry, but I have to ask you anyway. Don't be sure. Don't be sure. Well, you've faced Hall of Famers, of course, over the course of your career. In fact, Hall of Fame hitters logged 113 at-bats against you. Not good for me, I'm sure. Well, see, you, see you're always very self-deprecating with your career, but I, I've got this one for you. Of those 113 at-bats against current Major League Hall of Famers, only one hit a home run off of you. One Hall of Famer hit a home run off me. Do you know who that is? Uh, one Hall of Famer. If I had to pick the one. You were with the Rockies. I was with the Rockies, and I gave up a home run to a future Hall of Famer. Correct. 
I will say that the one thing I will not be super self-deprecating about is I didn't give up a ton of homers. That was, All right. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, accrue a ton of strikeouts. <laughs> I had to give something to get something. Well, he's a somewhat uh, recent member of Could it have been? I know the, the players that I faced the most, the Hall of Famers that I faced the most were uh, – I. you know what? I'm going to go off on a tangent here and say okay. it just struck me. Hanging slider, right center field. Could it possibly have been Craig Biggio? You nailed it. Yeah. You can uh, still see that pitch? I, I can see it, uh, <laughs> largely because, as, as we talked on a past podcast, right. I, I very kind of collector-centric, memorabilia-centric, mm-hmm. and uh, shortly after giving up that bomb to Craig Biggio, I received an 8x10 signed photo from said Hall of Famer that was signed, quit throwing me that nasty slider. Are you serious? Craig Biggio. Go get him. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I still have it. I kept it. And it's it's in a book. It's because I found it comical. It was, uh, well, there's, I, I think my slider was better than that <laughs> one. Uh, but, uh, you know, whether whether it's particularly the guys you faced a lot, Biggio, Bagwell, Mike Piazza, Barry Larkin, you know, uh, that I can think in the, the that many at-bats. There's, I, I, I didn't give up a ton of homers. But I threw a ton of sliders, and there was only one I remembered throwing to a player of that elk that didn't come back, and that was the one. So did you have a, a some form of a relationship with Biggio at the time for him to send you that photo? I would oh, yeah, imagine? yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't, it wasn't accidental, and I think it was, it was, uh, he was put up to it by a, a teammate of mine, which was, uh, which was, I thought, funny and welcome. And you're yeah. saying that that is a piece of your collection you still have? Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. I would think so. Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, we'll get to some uh, to some fan questions. Remember, you can always uh, uh, ask Jerry a question. You can email us uh, at uh, thewheelhouse at mariners.com, thewheelhouse at mariners.com. Uh, this is a Tom from where you might have met Tom. He's in Clinton, Iowa, Jerry. First of all, he wants to thank you for coming out to uh, the hot stove banquet there, and he cites the uh, not-so-warm weather there for you. And he is a big fan of the podcast, loves listening, especially enjoyed your memorabilia episode. Uh, his question for you is about the minor leagues and promotions and demotions throughout the farm systems specifically what are your requirements for promoting or demoting a player and uh, do you think the mariners promote fast enough apparently he lives uh, close to the astros single a club and he feels like those guys are moving up and down all the time and uh, that some have success with that and some don't so uh, your your thoughts on uh, how to promote players in the minor leagues well, I, th- I think while we don't have a, a, a system, a metric that gives us a number to define when mm-hmm. the player gets promoted, we do have a criteria for advancement. But it changes for each player. Each of our players in the system, when we when we get to spring training, will sit down with Andy McKay, with our coordinators, and with their ind- individual affiliate managers, and they're going to go through an individual player plan. And, and each player is going to have a different plan. When we've, if we have five key points in their player plan that we'd like to see them achieve when it's time for them to move is when they've shown that they've adequately nailed most of that list. And they know that. It could be four, it could be five, it's not going to be three. You'll stay at a level until you, until you achieve the, the ability to succeed in whatever those instances are. And some of them might be as simple as throwing your slider for a strike 50% of the time. It might be 60% first pitch strikes. It will we'll create attainable, achievable goals and give them to players. We don't want to make it too subjective because subjective goals create too much gray area. So we'll try to give them something. It usually references strike zone control. Uh, we're not looking for you to hit 20 homers to move. We're not looking for you to, to win an MVP to move, etc. 
but it's usually about controlling the strike zone on both sides of the ball. Hey, can you expand? What do you mean by creating the gray area exactly? In the gray area, mm-hmm. if we are if we are too subjective in our goal setting or in our criteria mm-hmm. for advancement, then it comes down to opinion, mm-hmm. and opinion is always going to create angst, and that you don't want the player to ever not have a black and white understanding of where he stands. So he always has the feedback of understanding what we think as a teammate, what we believe in his work habits, what we think of his focus and, and attentiveness, but. If we give him, and in some cases it might be three bullets, or in some cases it might be five, we're going to give him three or five tangible, reachable goals. This is what you're trying to get to. And, and it's, it's simple to look at the stat sheet and let that motivate you. That's the carrot. Uh, you can come. Everybody can work hard. It's a, it, anybody we sign, is, it can and will and should work hard. Not everybody can throw 60% for his pitch strikes. Not everybody can throw their slider over the plate 50% of the time. Not everybody can win the 1-1 count X percentage of the time, which is what we're trying to teach. Those are winning traits on the field, and when you do those things, you get to go to the next level. Well, uh, Jerry, believe it or not, we are just uh, four weeks away from uh, pitchers and catchers reporting, and on Thursday we'll be 10 weeks from opening night at Safeco Field. Hard to believe it's almost here. Um, and remember, as always, you can get your tickets uh, for opening day among uh, every other game by simply going to uh, Mariners.com or any Mariners team store. Jerry, uh, I look forward to sometimes seeing that Craig Biggio photo. I, I was glad to bring it in. <laughs> well, hang it on the office wall. You can throw darts at it. <laughs> Thanks for the time, as always, man. Uh, my pleasure.